you have a Bible and you want to open it up to James chapter 2. All right, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read. And he writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there comes in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, Well, sit thou here in a good place. And you say to the poor, Well, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. He says, Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? And do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you art become a transgressor of the law. And so speak ye, and so do ye, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. I want to go back briefly, back up into the end of chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, to kind of uh, segue into this chapter 2. And in that section there, James uses the word religious several times, in fact, three times. It's a very rare word in the New Testament. It's only used six times in the entire New Testament, and three of them are right here in these few verses in James. But, you know, we in America and in the world and our society, we use the term religion and religious. It's a common term that's used. You know, people talk about, oh, I listen to religious music, or we'll talk about religious freedom in our country, or there are many world religions. Or people will say, well, I'm religious. I hear this all the time in prison. I'm religious, but I don't like to go to church. But James, when he talks about true religion, he says true religion is what a person does outwardly. So most of the time we call somebody religious when they have this outward appearance. But James says it's true religion when what you do outwardly matches up with what you say has happened to you inwardly. So you say you love the Lord Jesus. You say you obey the Lord. You say you trust the Lord. And James says, if that's true, and if you just don't seem to be religious, or really what it's saying there is, think of yourself as religious, then he's saying there will be certain qualities that will characterize your life. There's going to be certain evidences that are going to show up. So he really doesn't like to use the term religion. He just uses it here. But all throughout chapter 2, when he talks about this is how you're going to know you're a Christian, he uses what? He uses the word faith. Faith dominates chapter 2, and he is a very practical teacher. The book of James, I mean, he hits home, he hits you hard, he hits you with simple illustrations, little homey illustrations. And so when he talks about faith, he's going to talk about in chapter 2 and what he's already talked about at the end of chapter 1, he's saying faith isn't just words, whether it's just words you speak about your faith or even if it's words that are just written down and these are the doctrines that we believe. You know, on our webpage we have, this is all of what we believe. It's all listed out there. 
The true faith for James is what we talked about it last week. It's not just speaking. It's not just having it written down. It's being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So he's saying true faith is going to be evidenced in our lives because we will live what we say we believe. It'll have works. And so here at the end in these last three verses of chapter one, he says, here's three practical evidences. You say you have faith. You say you're a believer. You say you're a doer of the word. Then this is what's going to evidence your life. The first thing he talks about is he says you will restrain or have a bridle like on a wild horse. You got a bridle and restrain him. He says, you're going to do that with your tongue. If you have what's true religion or you're truly a Christian. The second thing he talks about, he says, you're going to have concern for the needy, the orphans and the widows. And the third thing, he says, you're going to maintain an untainted character. You're going to be free from the influence of the world and its culture. That's what he talks about there. And he says, if you lack those things, what does he say you're doing to yourself? You're saying you're religious. You're saying you're a Christian. You say you have faith. But he says, if you lack those things, those simple things, he says, you're deceiving your heart. And he says, all this religious talk, all this religion, all this coming to meetings, all this reading your Bible, he said, all of it is vain. Or all of it is useless is what he's talking about. So the reason I wanted to go back to that last two verses, 26 and 27, it's really a table of contents, so to speak, for the rest of the letter. It talks about the tongue, concern for the poor, and having an untainted character from the world. And that's what we have here. In chapter 2, he deals with concern for the needy. In chapter 3, he's going to deal with your tongue. And in chapter 4, he's going to deal with purity, staying untainted from the world. I want to move in here to chapter 2. What's going on, we've just read this, is it must have been a problem that was creeping into the early church where they have favoritism that's being shown. And I'm saying that has been a, a problem from then, and it's still a problem today, I would say. Being in church and being a respecter of persons, as it's called, showing favoritism. So, so look what he says here in verse 1. James writes, he says, My brother, and he says, Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, that's kind of a funny worded sentence, if you ask me, reading it from the old King James Elizabethan language. But basically what he's saying is that to have faith, to have trust, to commit your life in the Lord Jesus Christ and show favoritism or treat people differently because of outward appearances, he's saying the two of those are not compatible. They don't work together. And to put it in simple terms, we could put it like this. You can't be a Christian, he's saying, and be prejudiced. That's right. Amen. We can put it like that. So we're not to judge a man or a woman based on their skin color, on their car, on their house, on their clothes, or any other, can I put it this way, outward trappings by the way they look. Either way, we're not to judge a person. We're not to judge them if they're rich or if they're poor. We're not to judge them because they're black or because they're white, because they're a nerd or because they're athletic. At a school I went to, I mean, all the jocks tend to kind of pick on the nerds, but Jesus, you better not do that if you're a Christian. We don't have those differences there. So James says you can't have it both. You can't say, I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm committed my life to him. But I also will bow my knee to those people that I think are going to give me some kind of worldly advantages or because they're outwardly impressive. I'm just impressed with them. But to those that are poor, a lot of times what we have here is you're just not well liked. Every group's like that. You just got those ones that people just don't tend to like them. And he says, you can't do that. You can't have those distinctions. 
well, this person over here that's cool and has got talents and whatever, oh, I like them and I'll, you know, I like to impress them, be around. This other person over here, I don't feel that I have to give them the time of day. James is saying, you can't do that. There's one, it's a command. And you can't do that. You got to stop it. So the NIV, some of these translations I think will help on that verse one, the NIV translation, it says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And that's really a good way of saying that. Or the Phillips translation says this, it says, don't ever attempt, my brothers, to combine snobbery with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a whole other way of putting it. I wouldn't say that's a direct translation of the Greek, but it gets the point across, doesn't it? It said, you can't combine snobbery. You're going to give special attention to certain people and not to others. He says, you can't combine that with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question it's causing us to ask right now is, am I impressed with people and things that God isn't impressed with? Are we impressed with things that don't impress God? That's the question. Our attitude towards other people reveals a lot of what's in our hearts, doesn't it? Do we treat people, the question is, the way God wants them to be treated? That's everybody. So in this first verse here, Jesus is called, think about it this way, he's called the Lord of glory, isn't he? And he is the Lord of glory. He came from glory, went back to glory. But we have to say, is that the way he walked when he was on the earth? So did he come as a man of position that was seeking glory? Did he have ambitions, earthly ambitions? I mean, the devil presented the whole world to him. He could have had it all. And that nah, wasn't what he was after, right? It was just the opposite, wasn't he, when he came? Born in a stable. He was a carpenter's son. He said, I don't have any place to even lay my head. The whole time he was on earth, didn't have a bed like I had. Didn't have one of those pillows they advertise on TV. You get your money back if you don't like it. He didn't have that. He had a rock. Allowed himself to be spit and beaten on. And who was his ministry to? Luke 4 says he was anointed to preach the gospel to whom? The poor. And then it says, go tell John what you hear and see. The poor are going to have the gospel preached to them. But he is what? The Lord of glory. So how can we have faith in him and despise not only the ones that he came to save, but despise the way that he lived on earth by despising the poor? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? He became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I don't think that means three Cadillacs, two vacation homes, and whatever all else some ministries will talk about. I don't think that's what it means by that. And I'm not saying God won't meet all of our needs, okay? I thoroughly believe that. He does that. But this word here where it says in the King James, the Lord of glory at the end of verse 1, with respect of persons, it literally, the word means receiving the face. And to the receive the face means you're going to see somebody and you're going to make a judgment on them based on their outward appearance. And the Old Testament says, though, that God's not like that. There's many Old Testament verses that say, God does not play favorites. And that's the title of the message. God does not play favorites, and neither should we. Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, 
the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. He's saying he's the great and awesome and mighty God. It says, yet he looks down on people on earth and he is not partial. In fact, it says, if anything, he's looking out for the fatherless and the needy. Those are the ones he's looking out to help. He says he doesn't take a bribe. You're not going to bribe him like a judge could be bribed or some politician. He's not like that. So James goes on here after verse 1, and he gives this illustration in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. He goes, here's what I'm talking about to give him an illustration. Do you wonder what I mean? He says, for if there comes into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there comes in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. He's given a scenario there that probably happened. I'm almost 100% certain it happened because I've seen it happen here, so to speak. So he gives a scenario. Two men are coming and they're visiting a church meeting. And it says, we're talking about one man is dressed really nice and he's got a gold ring. James doesn't say the guy's rich, does he? You know why? Because he doesn't have to. Because a gold ring back then was a symbol of wealth. And the word for gold ring is literally gold-fingered. And it was common in Rome back then. If you had money, I got a gold ring on there. Nobody thinks anything of that. I've had this thing for, I can't get it off. I got fat around it. But, anyway. <laughs> but they would have gold rings going all the way up and down one finger, sometimes all their fingers. And they, that was cool. That was a cool way to be. All this bling. That's the way they'd be back then. It was a symbol of wealth. Sometimes if you're going to a big event and you lived in Rome, there was places that would rent you gold rings. So you'd be right in place, depending on you know, what society you were in. I'm sure this guy, has got his gold ring. It said his fine, fine clothes. And it, you know, if you've ever been out in public, you go to certain places and you see this guy that just stands out. You can tell this dude is somebody. I don't know who he is. He is somebody. His hair's coiffed. He's got the tie, the suit, and just the way he carries himself. I talked to a lawyer one time a couple years ago in Louisville. He was that kind of guy. I mean, his speech was not like mine. It was smooth as butter. <laughs> He'd have had my wallet in five minutes. I'm saying he looked the part, played the part. Every, he was perfect for the role, and he was a high-priced lawyer. That's the kind of person he's describing here, somebody that's going to be on GQ. But he said another man walks in maybe at the same time. And his clothes aren't fine. In fact, it says what about his clothes? That he's got vile raiment, vile, filthy, shabby clothes is what it's talking about here. And James has given us a picture of your typical homeless person. They got mismatched clothes. They're dirty. They probably have a little bit of an odor about them. Their hair is not coiffed. If you've ever seen a homeless person, they probably got bad posture. This person will not be on the cover of GQ next month, the person he's describing here. And so these guys walk in, and what is the church usher going to do? Because the service is crowded. Now, back then, this is the early church, they're probably meeting in a home, but the home's crowded. And he's faced at the door with these two guys, one a well-dressed stranger, and the other is this disheveled, smelly tramp. And there's only a few seats left. And so look what he says here in verse 3. And you have respect 
to him that wears the gay clothing, the fine clothing, and you say to him, sit thou here in a good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. And that word for have respect means to pay special attention to. It's the idea of you're just fawning over someone. So you picture he sees this nice guy in there. Maybe they're walking in about the same time. He gets that guy by the arm. Well, Mr. Buffett, uh, sure, there's a seat right up here and in the front, right next to the fireplace. It's kind of a cool evening. You usher him up there, get you in this nice leather chair, be real comfortable. And he looks back to the poor man while he's ushering that guy up front. He goes, well, you just stand there, downwind. Or it says, sit at my footstool. Really what it's saying is just sit on the ground. Just stay out in the lobby and just sit down out there somewhere. That's what it would be the equivalent of. But you bring Mr. Buffett right up front, get him a nice, warm, comfortable seat. Has that ever happened? Has <laughs> that ever happened where we get somebody to come in? We haven't had too many of those, I don't think, through the years. But we have had, occasionally, we'll get somebody that's not dressed real good. Or it's like, who is this person? They don't exactly fit in here. And what's our reaction? Well, one thing I was thinking about this I asked a customer one time, said, where is your church? And when I'm telling her, I said, well, that's why I'm going to tell you we're in the industrial park. She goes, well, that's a real scenic location for a church. I'm like, well, we're not a real scenic church. But, you know, if you think about it, if your location is in the industrial park, who do you think is going to drop in? I mean, it's not going to be somebody from downtown Louisville or Shelbyville, more than likely, right? But what's your first thought when you see somebody that's obviously, they got issues of some sort and they come in? What's your first thought about them? I think they're probably up to no good. Why did you have to come in here? What are you up to? Do you want money? We've had that happen, and maybe they do, but maybe they don't. What are you doing when you do that? You're just making a judgment on that person just based on what you're seeing. I told you that story about Simbola. Had that guy come up at the end of his meeting, and he did stink, and he did have vile clothing on there, and that's what he thought the guy wanted. He's reaching for his money clip and going to give him, and the guy's like, I don't want your money, preacher. I want to meet this Jesus you've been talking about because I've been living out in the car all strung out on drugs. I need help. Symbol said he got convicted about that. All of us, you know, we see somebody coming in here that looks like they got issues. Our first thought can't be we just wish you and your issues would leave. We got to be thinking, man, how can we somehow help you out? And if they want money and we've done that, and people help them out. Maybe they legitimately need help. Be glad to do it. That's what we're talking about here. So, you know, the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover because you don't know what's going on with the pages inside always, do we? Back when I was handing out tracks left and right everywhere, I remember one time I was in a convenience store. This dude was this big, burly biker, and he looked like he'd just rip your neck off. No problem. He was huge. And I'm thinking, give this guy a track. I might be dead. Might be my last track. (laughs) This was your life, and this will be my life. That guy was like a little puppy dog. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow. I'm just saying you can't tell. And you can't tell it, that guy that's so rough and got that foul mouth, that might be the one God's dealing with. And maybe he'll deal with them through you. Now, let me hasten to add, though, that James is not saying this, that he's not sh- saying that we shouldn't show respect to whom people it's due. So let's say... We're not crowded like that, but let's just say there, there were no seats left, you know, something happened. Somebody, a bus got sidetracked and a hundred people came in here. <laughs> let's just say that happened, all right? We're out of seats. And on that bus was this little old lady. They're looking around for a seat. And so James brings her in. He's going to find her a seat. And he, and he asks Isaac, would it be wrong for him to say, Isaac, would you get up or someone in the middle, wherever? 
Would it be wrong for him to say, out of respect for this old lady, would you get up and give her your seat? I don't think so. That's not the same thing as what James is talking about here, is it? It's not the same thing. Leviticus 19 says this, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. <laughs> it's anything about the bald head, but it's something about the gray head. I guess I follow that. Or let's bring another scenario in here, okay? What if the president came to visit us here? Would it be not proper and right to show him respect to even stand up when the president of the United States walked in the room and to let him have a seat? Doesn't it say we should honor the king and show honor to who honor is due? Now, I know some people would say I would take a knee. That seems to be the popular thing. But I think we should show people that are due respect, respect. But just because somebody is a wealthy businessman, a doctor, a lawyer, an athlete, someone that has talent, or an actor, we shouldn't just be fawning over them because of that and disrespecting somebody that comes in about the same time. It doesn't have any, Why should the one be over the other is what James's point is what we're thinking about today. You can't treat that poor man with contempt. And so he says here in verse 4 that when we're guilty of this sin, we're showing partiality. That's what he says. He says, are you not then, when you do what he just described, that case scenario, are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts is what he says you're doing. When we pass judgment on people, either way, on their outward appearances. Because what are you doing when you do that? We're judging the one thing that we can't judge. And what is that? The heart. Yeah, we're judging their heart because only God can do that. So you all remember in the Bible, God sent Samuel to anoint the new king, sent him to Jesse's house. And they start having the boys pass before Samuel. And the oldest boy, Eliab, comes in front of him and he's like, surely this guy, this has got to be the one. The Lord's anointed is before him. But as soon as he thought that, it said, The Lord said unto Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. He says, Listen, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. And look, this is for all of us. We've all been guilty of this. We all fall into this, and that's why we're teaching. <laughs> As a reminder, I'm sure we'll all need to repent to some degree or another, right? That's not the point. So what we're doing when we do that, he's saying it's your evil thoughts. We're saying this person is special because of what we see outwardly. And so our Lord Jesus Christ never did that, did he? I mean, even his enemies knew that. Back in Mark 12, if you remember, it says this, they came to him and they're going to ask him that question. The first one, they said, we know that you are true and that you care for no man. In other words, you don't have respect for anybody, no matter who they are. He says, for you regard not the person of men, but he says, you teach the way of God in truth. And that is the way he not only taught, he wasn't afraid of what people thought. He'd rebuke the ones that needed rebuked. He wasn't concerned about that, but it's also the way he ministered, wasn't it? So a Jew wouldn't have anything to do with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. But who does he sit down and spend time with? That Samaritan woman. Because he doesn't care. He's looking at what? He's looking at her heart. What about the lepers? Nobody messes with lepers. 
He did, because he saw there was a need there. The widow of Nain lost her only son. He had compassion on her, didn't he? Any that had needs, rich or poor. Because Jairus was a rich man. He helped him out too, didn't he? He didn't care. He was no respecter of persons, even though we read he is, it says in verse 1, no respecter of persons, even though he's the king of glory. Most people that would be said that about a worldly king, the king of glory, they got no time for the common man. Generally not. They keep them away from him. And so James says, we just read it there in verse 4, that when you treat the poor, when any of us treat the poor with dishonor, we're sinning. We set ourselves up as their judge, and we overestimate our own importance in doing that, don't we? We overestimate our own importance, and he says that is evil. Panaris, that's a bad word in Greek. You don't want to be called evil, have evil thoughts. And it can have effects on people that you maybe aren't aware of. Somebody comes, nobody pays any attention to them, doesn't treat them right, and they never come back because that's what happened to Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India. He died in 48, was it 48? I think it was. Yeah, lived a few years back, but a famous person. And in his autobiography, he said when he was a student, this is what I read, that he was interested in the Bible. Started reading the Bible, said he was deeply touched by the Gospels. Seriously considered becoming a convert because to him, Christianity seemed to be the real solution to the caste problem that they were having in India. People of different levels. And so one Sunday he went to a church. He wanted to talk to the minister to see how can I be saved? And he wanted to ask him about other Christian doctrines. But when he entered the sanctuary, when he came into the sanctuary, the ushers would not give him a seat. And they suggested that he just go back and worship with his own people. And it says he left and never came back. He said if Christians have a caste difference also, just like we do, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu, which is what he did. Now, I heard he read the Sermon on the Mount every day still, but he never became a Christian. And James says, it's saying here that a man with no social status, no money, shabby clothes, but he has a heart that's right with God. He's saying we need to be careful how we treat him, whoever that might be. And he gives three reasons why here. So we look in verse five for the first reason. Look what it says. He says, hearken, listen up, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? He's saying it's wrong to show favoritism to the rich and to despise the poor because it's contrary. It's the opposite of the way that God thinks. He's saying that's the first reason he's given here because he says God doesn't think like that. God's chosen the poor. He says, but you despise them. That's what he's telling them. He doesn't mean that God only chooses the poor, does he, in saying that? Because he chooses some rich people. We know he chose Abraham. He chose Zacchaeus. He didn't have to give all his money away. Joseph of Arimathea was one of his disciples. But those people are more the exceptions. Because we know this verse, remember, it says, Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many. Now listen, God's not partial. He's not partial against the rich. But his point is this, that God in general, he's chosen whom to inherit his kingdom. We just read it in verse 5. Who has he chosen in general? The poor. Isn't that what it says? And why is that? 
Why does God have this special concern for the poor? Is it just because his taste in dress is shabby? You know, God likes shabby. I don't really like the well-coiffed. Is that what it is? He likes grubby people? No, it's because he delights to help the helpless. That's his nature. He likes to help out those that are oppressed and afflicted. So think about it. When Israel was being oppressed by the Egyptians, it's like their cries that came up to me. They cried out in their bondage. He came down in his love, didn't he? It says he, he gave his ear to them. So listen, what it's telling us is that the love of the poor, the downtrodden, the helpless, love of those people is part of the divine nature. So listen to these verses. Psalm 35.10 says this, Lord, who is like unto you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and needy from him who plunders him. That's God's nature. He sees somebody taking advantage of the poor. God likes to step in and help out. Psalm 113, 5-8 says, Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high and who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may set him with princes. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. He's talking about who lifts the poor out of the dust. And even back then, it was a curse. It was a disgrace not to have children. And he's saying a woman that cries out to him, that barren woman, he grants her children. Many times that happens. Don't we have many cases where one of those women are barren and the husband cries out to God, entreats the Lord, and next thing you know, she's with child. But that's the way he is. That's the way the Lord is. And in Isaiah 3, God sternly, if you go back and read that, he sternly rebukes the elders and it says the princes, the wealthy people of Israel for taking advantage of the poor. Listen to this, Isaiah 3, 13 to 15. It says the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. And here's why. He says, for you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean, he says, by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts? Now, that's pretty graphic language, isn't it? Grinding the faces of the poor. It's like grinding somebody's face in the dirt. The nature of God, then, is to step in and help out. It's just like if you saw some guy, you got some little skinny guy that you know hadn't done anything, and you see some big bully just grinding his face in the concrete, you're going to try to do something to help him out, aren't you? I would think so. No one likes to look and see the high and the mighty oppressing the helpless, and that is God's heart. So if you would, put something in James and turn back to Psalm 10. I want you to see this one. Psalm 10, saying it's the nature of God to help the helpless, and that's why he has regard for the poor. Verses 12 to 14. Psalm 10, beginning in verse 12, it says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble or the afflicted. He says, Wherefore do the wicked condemn God? He has said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. But look what it says in verse 14. He says, You have seen it, for you behold mischief and spite, and to requite it with thy hand. And here is why God has respect for the poor. Look what it says. The poor does what? Commits himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. That is why God seems to have special consideration for the poor. 
because they are the ones that will commit themselves and trust their souls to him. You know why that is? Because they're the ones that they don't have anything else to trust in. No education, no riches, no social standing, because the human heart, all of us in here, every human heart, it tends to reach out for help when it needs it, doesn't it? Whatever's available. And the worldly, wise, and powerful, and those that have riches, they reach out in their pride for what they have, don't they? It says the wicked in the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. And that's what you have. A person that's worldly wise, has money, wealth, position. That's the last thing they're going to do is bow their knee to the Lord, generally. But the poor, they tend to have nothing. And they reach out to, in their poverty, who do they reach out to? God. It's just like now, you see these hurricane victims. You see people that go through those tornadoes and their hurricanes. Everything's wiped out, especially, you'll hear them all the time. They'll even put it on the secular news programs. What do they do? What will they say? We cried out to God. I don't know how much they prayed before that, but they're like, we have nothing. And they have nowhere else to turn. They don't have stocks and bank accounts, do they? And we cry out to God to help them. That's why I think it's important we help them down there, the poor people that need help. The thing we need to see, it's not just because they're poor that God has mercy on him. It's the ones who cry out to him. That's why I read that verse. So we're not saying just being poor in and of itself causes God to give you consideration. It's the ones who commit themselves to him. That's why we read that verse. Because if you look back here, James is very careful to qualify what he's saying. Go back to James and look what he's saying at the end of verse 5. So look, he says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which, look what he says at the end, he qualifies what all he said, which he's promised to whom? To them that love him. Because we all know poor, downcast, alcohol and drug addicted people that hate the Lord. I've met many of them. Just being poor doesn't necessarily qualify you, but... What James is saying and what the New Testament and I believe the whole Bible clearly teaches is that God loves to shower his grace on those that are in the world, that the world's just discarded. The world's rubbish. Isn't that who it says he saves? Isn't that back to 1 Corinthians? He saves who? The foolish, weak, based, and despised. Those are the ones that God has mercy on. And that was me. And I assume that was you. Foolish, weak, based, and despised. And the second reason he gives here is in verses 6 and 7. He says, if you despise the poor, all you're doing, any of us, we despise somebody because they don't have standing, they don't have the right clothes. He says, you're just acting just like the world. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, tells them, but you have despised the poor. And he says, but do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? And do they not blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? He's saying, look, the rich people, these ones you're just falling all over because they came in your meeting because they look like they're somebody. He says, they are the ones as a general group that oppress the poor, drag people into court and blaspheme the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not saying every single rich person is like that. I've met several that aren't like that. But he says, generally, that's the way they already say it. And why are you falling all over yourselves to give them all this special attention? Are you doing that? asking the question. I like what John Calvin said about this. He says, the object of James was to show in saying what he said here, that you are without reason, these Christians in this church, without reason or judgment, 
who through ambition, I like the way he said it, honored their executioners. And in the meantime, injured their friends, at least those from whom they had never suffered any wrong. And Calvin went on to say, and this is, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, they appeared to be fools. You all appear to be fools because it wasn't because of some act of kindness this rich person did to you that persuaded you to just fall all over them. It wasn't because of that. You admire them strictly because they're rich. You admire the rich, he says, because they're rich and flattered those on whom they found to be to their own lost, unjust, and cruel. Yeah. You get in a rich person's money and see how much they're still smiling at you when you cross them in that way. A lot of times that's the way it is. So the emphasis, though, I think, though, with James in verse 6 here is when he says you, he's talking to the Christians there, you have despised the poor. In other words, he's saying you're acting just like the very ones that oppress you. So what we're saying here through all this is that the church culture, our culture of how we treat each other, people that come in, it shouldn't mirror the culture of the world, okay? Because the world has its pecking order, doesn't it? It places the wealthy, the famous, the talented at the top of the list. And at the bottom are who? The nobodies, the down and outs. God's pecking order is upside down of that, isn't it? He flips the ladder upside down. That's what he's saying here. That's what we're reading here. Which just brings us to the third reason why we shouldn't have respect to persons. Verses 8 and 9. Because when we do that, we show respect to persons and dishonor the poor. It's a sin. That's what he says. He says, if you fulfill the royal law, verse 8, according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says, you do well. He says, but if you have respect to persons, he says, you do what? You commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. So James talks here in verse 8 about the royal law. Well, why is it called the royal law? It's because it was given by the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they came to the king and asked him what was the greatest commandment, what was his answer? Matthew 22. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. That's the first and great commandment. The second one is what? What we have here in James. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, listen, that royal law is not just one law. So Jesus is saying, when he's saying you are loving your neighbor, what does he say you're doing there? He's saying that is summing up all of what was in the law and the prophets. That is just one way of summing it up, putting it in one sentence like that. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So the world law is, it's all of the commands that Jesus spoke. It all comprises what is the world law. So John Abel sent me an email not too long ago. One of his daughters had actually gone through the New Testament and written out, typed in, every command of Jesus. Every imperative where he gives a command. Here it is. Ten pages. You can see how I did it. He had it 15. I made it smaller print. Ten pages of small printed commands. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who cursed you. Love your enemies. And on and on. None, I don't think any of them are repeated. All the way through here. The royal law, because it came from the lips of our king. Amen. And that's what we're talking about here. The heart of the royal law, though, is James is telling us, is that ethical command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we love ourselves? You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and if you're like me, you go, ugh. But then you do everything you can to make ugh look as presentable as possible. 
I mean, you meet its needs. And that's what we're talking about. That's how we love ourselves. Anytime that we feel like we have a need, we try to meet it, don't we? That's what we do. And so the world, though, they define love primarily how? In emotional terms. But that's not the way the Bible defines love. It defines love in terms of caring. Terms of caring. Alec Motyer says this, the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expend on ourselves. I like what he says here. The essence of the royal law is that wherever there is need, there is an obligation to extend the sort of love we lavish on ourselves. The essence of partiality, which is what James is talking about, is to select the recipients of our care on some other ground other than that they are in need. In other words, we're going to help certain people and not help other people, not because the need's not the same, but because there's an advantage in some way to helping this person. And that's partiality. And they're saying, that's not right. That's not loving thy neighbor because Jesus told us in the Good Samaritan story who our neighbor is. It is not just limited to your little group of people, your little group of friends, is it? It's everybody that you run across that has a need because they hated the Samaritans. And there he is. He had a need. And everybody's walking around him. So James goes on. He says, well, you can't just violate one command of this royal law and not be guilty of breaking them all. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, just one point, he says he's guilty of all. What he's saying here, the best way to illustrate this is he's saying the law is not like just a pile of stones where you can just take out one law or one stone and the pile will pretty much stay there. He's saying, no, really, the way you need to understand this is the law is like a big picture window. And so you throw a brick and you hit the right lower corner and shatter. Guess what happens? The whole thing's shattered, isn't it? It's not just isolated. And that's the way it is. Why is that? though? Why is he saying that? Why is breaking one law the same as breaking the whole? Well, he goes on to explain in verse 11, it says, for he that said, and that's the key, he that said, do not commit adultery. He said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery yet, if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. The reason you can't separate out one law from another is because all of the royal law came from where? The lips of the king. That's why. For he that said. And so anytime we violate one law, wherever we sin, whenever we sin, we violate what? We violate the will of the king. That's what that whole law represents. We're sinning against God's nature who's represented in his laws and in his commands. We're, we're sinning against him. So it's like a diamond. you got a diamond. The brilliance of the diamond is equivalent to the perfections of the holiness of God, the nature of God. And so the whole diamond, in a sense, is the law. And the individual facets of that diamond are all of the individual commandments. And you can't take one out of there, start taking one out, and still have the beauty of the diamond. It all comprises the holiness of God, and that's what his law is. It all is the beauty and the holiness of God. So you can't say, well, I mean, I had somebody tell me this. Well, look, you know, I've, I've never murdered somebody, but I have committed adultery. And like that somehow made things right. And that's what James exactly is saying here. You can't do that. You can't think because you're right or I've never actually cheated on my wife, but lusting all the time. So you can't say that. So what he's saying is here, the king has spoken. 
It's his voice, and he's given us the royal law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself. And so what do we do? It's verse 12. So speak ye because of them, therefore, and so do ye as they that shall be judged, he says, by this law of liberty. And that's telling us a couple things there, that verse is, that we have an obligation to obey our king. And why? Because one day we are going to have to stand before him and to be judged for our obedience or our disobedience. That doesn't mean your obedience secures your salvation, because all your obedience does is prove that you have received salvation. So grace doesn't free us from our obligation of obedience, but it enables us to obey. Because Paul said what? None of us are going to escape the judgment seat of Christ. That's everybody in here. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in his body, whether good or bad. And he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul says, We persuade men. I persuade men. And the second thing we see there is, what though? It's right there. Our obedience should come from where? From the heart, because it's called the what? The law of liberty. So we're all made in the image of God, aren't we? We have his nature in the royal law. His commands are given to show us how we can walk in the past that are similar to our nature. We're made in his nature and the law comes from his nature. But the world doesn't look at it that way. James is combining two words here that the world thinks are like oil and water. And that is law and liberty. Because the world says, if you got a law, you don't have liberty. We want to be free to, quote unquote, be ourselves. And the Bible says that's the worst form of bondage that you could ever be in. Because we're like a train. We're made to ride on that track. And as long as we're on the track, which is like the law, everything is fine. As long as we're obeying our Lord, everything's fine. But as soon as you get off that track and you think it's freedom to not be confined to that narrow track, as soon as you get off that track, you're going nowhere you're actually really in bondage. Verse 13, to end here, and he offers us a warning, I think, in this verse, as well as comfort. Look what it says in verse 13. He says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, but, he says at the end, mercy rejoices against judgment. So everybody remembers the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. The merciful king forgave that great debt, that huge debt that that servant had when he begged him to. But that same servant went out and showed no mercy at all to a fellow servant that owed him the equivalent of nothing. And when that happened, guess what happened? The merciful king says, I'm withdrawing my mercy to you. The key to that is, though, the servant, he called him what? Thou wicked servant. Because that servant displayed his true character. He'd never experienced the mercy of his master. Never really experienced it. And that's what's going to happen on the day of judgment. People that are professing Christians, hopefully no one in here, if you've never really experienced the mercy of the Savior, you'll never show it to others. It won't be there to be shown. You'll be unmerciful. James here, I think in this last statement, on a positive ending, is I think he's proclaiming the gospel that mercy rejoices against judgment. Because I think what he's saying there is, on the other hand, those that have received the mercy of God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ will show mercy to other people. They aren't going to be people that show favoritism. 
And on the day of judgment, the fact that they've been merciful to others, that's what happens when you show favoritism. You're not being merciful to the poor person. You're going to be merciful to everyone like God has been merciful to everyone. And he's saying on that day, even though we deserve judgment, the fact that God had shown us mercy and that was demonstrated. So James is saying this is the evidence of true Christian faith. You'll evidence it by not showing partiality. And he's saying, so on that day, we deserve judgment, but we received mercy, and it was evidenced in our life by a true and living faith because we showed mercy to others. Because those that don't, he's going to say, wait a minute, I'm going to judge you by your works, and your works are showing you never received saving faith. Amen? It's really not that complicated. You shall love thy neighbor as thyself. It's as simple as we have been shown mercy and therefore show mercy to others, no matter who they are. That's really the message today. The question then becomes to close is what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be? Because it's all individual. Individually, we have to determine how we're going to treat other people, don't we? Get rid of our caste system because there's a caste system here. It always has been to some degree, just to be honest about it. Are we going to have our church be where we've got a social ladder? We've got some that are accepted, some that aren't, showing favoritism, shunning certain people because they're undesirable for whatever reason somebody's decided that? Or are we going to be a church that operates what we've been talking about today on the royal law, the law of the kingdom of God, that we're not influenced by outward appearances, not influenced by someone's talent? Not influenced because somebody is cool or not cool. But we're going to be a church that is influenced and has regard, like God does, the heart of God, for the oppressed, the afflicted, widows, orphans, willing to help those that have needs. That's the heart of God. Because God has had mercy on us, and we should be willing to have mercy on others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. And it's convicting to all of us, Lord. And uh, just ask you will give us repentance where we need it and enable us, Lord, to, to change the course of our lives and the course of our church to where we're willing to look on each other, not with favoritism, not with some kind of social ladder, but that we look on everyone the same, Lord. We're not partial. And anyone that has a need, we're willing to meet that need no matter who they are and no matter what the need is. And I just ask, Father, that you just start with me, that you'll give all of us a heart for that, Lord, that we can have your heart, a heart of mercy, because we have received mercy. And we thank you for the word that you've given us today, Lord, in speaking to us. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.